We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. All right. So thank you for joining me today, Andy. I'm excited to hear your story. I think before I knew you, I heard your story up actually at the meeting, and that was years ago. Oh, boy. So this is me hearing your story, knowing you. Mm-hmm. And you were one of the dark nights in the our Saturday morning meeting because... I didn't recognize how significant your shares are for a while. And I get some of my best guidance from you every week. So now when you comes around to you, I'm super excited to hear what you have to say because you're funny and you're smart and you squeeze in very insightful things without much effort. And we're going to get to hear it today. No pressure. No pressure. No pressure at all. Wow. So you'll start with your name mm-hmm. and your sobriety date. Okay. You'll share your experience, strength, and hope, what it was like, how you came to the rooms, what it's like now. does not have to be in that order. We just want to qualify as an alcoholic and then yep. show what life looks like today. You get there however. Yep. However uh, I get there. However you get there. Okay. All right. Well, so I'm Andy and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is June 8th, 1986. Um, and it's my first sobriety date. Uh, let's see. Where do I start? I guess I'll start at the beginning. So I come from a, uh, large Catholic family. I'm the youngest of six and including my parents of the family of eight, six out of eight of us have made it to the program in one shape or another. So yeah, I guess you could say it runs in the family. Um, I was the second one to the program, my dad being the first. Um, And, you know, my drinking and using um, career, as it were, was much like everybody else's. Being the youngest of six, my brothers and sisters did a wonderful job of clearing the path for me so that by the time I got into drugs and alcohol, my parents were really not all that impressed. They was like, okay, that's it? Okay, no big deal, you know? And I was, compared to friends that I was growing up with, I had an extremely long leash. And uh, I think that just accelerated the progression of my disease um, to the point where, you know, uh, drinking was such a easily accessible thing for me. So... Um, I grew up in the Far East. My dad was a field sales engineer for an American company. And um, growing up in, it was actually Far East Asia, Japan, is where I grew up. And being blonde-haired in Tokyo in the 60s, uh, yeah, you stand out a little bit. And um, all through my childhood and adolescent years, Uh, I kept finding myself in situations, especially as I was getting into trouble, where people would say things, those in authority would say things, well, what usually happens is, and at that point I knew I was going to get away with whatever I was going to get away with. Um, And so I 
I got a message early on in life that said somehow these rules don't apply to you. And that became an anchor in my uh, behavior, my thinking, my my uh, way of acting, and somehow made me invincible or thinking so. So it's and and I know this happens for all teenagers, but it was it was just like an added benefit, you know. And so how I didn't end up in more trouble than I got into, I really don't know. Um, I guess I looking back on it, it's really God's grace. Drinking was a big part of our family. Um, you know, as, as a kid, uh, I remember Thanksgivings and Christmases where my parents would serve us wine as early as like six, seven, my age, you know, and, and it wasn't uncommon. It wasn't a big deal. The, um, ready access to alcohol in Japan was, was, it just helped me along my journey, um, in, in in Tokyo, they have these uh, vending machines everywhere where you can buy beer. And so beer run means, you know, how much change can we scrounge up, run down to the corner where there's a machine and, and load up. You know, so that's kind of how our uh, evening parties would go. Uh, so, so, yeah, drinking became a very uh, uh, central part of my living when I was in junior high school. And... Uh, It became pretty regular, frequent, easy access, that sort of thing. My Again, talking about the long leash, my parents, when I was 14, uh, one summer said, we're we're going to the States for the summer. Uh, What are you doing? And I thought, oh, uh, I guess I'll find a summer job and hang out here in Tokyo. And they said, okay, see you in a couple months. And... uh, Every time I shared that with my wife, she'd just be like appalled. How fourteen, really? But I was in the care of my sixteen-year-old brother. What could possibly go wrong, right? So, yeah, it was a long leash. And and uh, liquor stores in Japan actually, you can have an account and they'll actually deliver. So extremely convenient. Um, and and uh, getting um, uh, access to to money to pay for my drinking was easy because everyone in Japan can get an English teaching job and it's easy money. Um, and so that's kind of how I fed my habit, you know, and I've always had a, a good steady income so I wouldn't run out kind of thing. And and looking back on it, I saw that the, the, the pattern of protecting the alcohol supply was a priority, always had been. Um, I barely finished call, uh, high school. You know, my if I look at my high school transcript, it represents a uh, a social experience, not an academic one. Um, but I did graduate, and um, after I finished high school, my uh, parents said, Here, "Here's a ticket to the states. You should go see this country that you're a citizen of." And I had never lived here before, um, so I toured around the. States for a few months, went back to Japan, got a job in a bar, bartending. Great job for an 18-year-old. And, uh, you know, the, the the bar would open at 5 p.m. and close at 6 a.m. And it was every night kind of thing. Um, and that helped my habit continue going. Um, Fast forward a bit, I moved to the States in 1981 to go to school, uh, started going to school in Illinois, 
Uh, drinking got me in trouble there. I ended up uh, uh, moving from Illinois out to California uh, because it, it was a bit of a shock culturally being in the middle of uh, this biggest city in the world and then going to this really tiny town out in the countryside, uh, which seemed so insulated and isolated. I, I just felt totally out of place. Um, but alcohol was there, and it was the constant that made me fit in no matter where I went. Um, the uh, progression out here in California with the help of uh, 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 you know, other substances, uh, weed, cocaine, uh, accelerated my journey in, in uh, my disease. And when I was 22... I think it was 22. I went back to Japan for the last time to visit my parents while they were still living there uh, over a Christmas holiday break. And my dad uh, said, hey, let's go have lunch. And, and you know, he never does that. So I figured, okay, what's up? And, and the conversation started much like all of our family conversations did, which was, he said, uh, your mother thinks you have a drinking problem. So nothing we ever say in home is direct. It's always this person talks to that person to get to that person, that kind of thing. And he had been to treatment. He went to treatment when I was a senior in high school. And so this would have been 1983 going into 84. And uh, he basically, we had lunch that one day, and he basically told me his story. It was a 12-step call. I, don't real, I didn't know it then, but it was basically that. It was my dad 12-stepping me. Um, not that I was asking for it, not that I was ready for it, right? But it sank in with me what he had talked about. The whole the thing the thing I remember the most about that uh, time was his description of the alcoholic, the progression, the disease, the phenomena of craving. How once we start, we can't stop, and how one drink triggers the craving, the physical craving for the next drink. And that I related to. I thought, geez. Maybe I do have this problem. Backing up a little bit, the first time I was exposed to any concept of AA, I was uh, um, in junior high school, eighth grade, and one of these kids had had this list of 20 questions. And uh, it's the 20-question pamphlet that circulates in AA today. And uh, the fine print at the time, at the time it was published by John Hopkins University, and there was 20 questions, yes or no, about drinking habits. And this guy said, just think about school wherever it says work because, you know, I'm not working. I'm only 14 at the time. Well, I got half the test right. And so it, fine print said if you answered three or more of these, you're probably an alcoholic. And I thought, I'll oh, screw him, you know. But I'll tell you, every time I was totally smashed or hugging the porcelain or, you know, that, that memory would come back. And it's like, maybe I do have a problem. Maybe there is something wrong with the way I'm drinking. So when my dad 12-stepped me, it kind of sunk in as, yeah, maybe I got a problem. So I stopped drinking, and I switched to pot and coke, which basically accelerated everything. So I didn't drink for two years. In that two-year period, I had maybe a dozen or so beers or something like that. But my drinking stopped, but I just switched seats is all I did, which accelerated things for me. Um, I found employment uh, right after my dad had uh, 12-stepped me in February of 84. I found employment with this company. And, um, and um, 
you know, I was continuing to work with them and I was making good money. I was paying my own way. I was no longer dependent on parents or anything like that. And um, I found myself one day walking into my boss's office. Um, and this was around May of 1986. I walked into her office and I didn't think this was, I didn't even know this was going to happen that day, but I find myself standing in her office saying, um, I'm dying. I need help. Those are the words that left my mouth. And then the word she, you know, I don't know if you've ever opened a conversation with that line, but generally it'll get people to stop doing email or whatever. Um, and she looked at me, it's like, what? And, uh, the words that followed were, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic and I can't get sober and I need help. And no sooner did those words leave my mouth, my brain is going, what the hell are you doing? They're going to fire you. You know, you don't do that. That's, this just isn't right. Oh, now you've totally blown it. This voice in my head, who I've since named Boozer Pig, uh, speaks at the most inappropriate times, but continues to feed me with these thoughts and ideas. And just, it's usually just a ramble. But anyway, Boozer Pig's going, dude, what are you doing? You know, you're going to get yourself fired. Um, and, of course, the look on her face was one of stunned shock, right? And she just looked at me and said, how can we help? Which is not what I was expecting to hear. I was not expecting to hear that at all. And I thought, yeah, I hadn't planned this out, you know. I don't know what comes next. Uh, and so I said, well, um, I was thinking I'd just go use my vacation and – go hang out by my parents because uh, they were living up in uh, outside of uh, Seattle, about an hour away from uh, downtown Seattle, out in the woods. Had this, you know, they were far away in the middle of nowhere. He didn't drink. There was no dr drugs or alcohol there. I'll just go hide out for six weeks. That was my plan. And she goes, all right. <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Um when do you want to go? Uh, well, we kind of have to button up a few loose ends here. I got work things, a couple of things in the works. And, and, and in the meantime, so so we decided it would be about June 1st. And so this was in the beginning of May. And so I had a, a few weeks to get my things in order, right? And uh, um, at the time, I had two roommates. One was a pot dealer. One was a cocaine dealer. Um and I remember the night, actually backing up a little bit, the, right about a week or so, right about the time I was off of work, around June 1st or so, um, I had been talking to my parents, and, and my dad was on the phone. He says, boy, it's great that you're going to get to come up, and we're excited to have you and all this, but you haven't been with this company that long. You know, How, how are you getting all this time off? And then I told him. I have this drug and alcohol problem. He goes, oh, okay. And then he calls me back the next day and he goes, guess what? There's a treatment center six miles from us and they have a bed for you on June 8th. Be here. That was it, you know? And so, and, and that was on the 1st of June. So now I got a week to get things done, get my affairs in order, which I'm now off of work. So I basically had a week to basically, what I realize now is, try to put it into it. And and I I remember the night of June 7th as being, 
out of booze, out of dope, being completely alone, not high enough, not drunk enough, and just that utter sense of desperation and loneliness. And I just, I was just like done. I was absolutely done. And like our book talks about Bill's story, how he describes this bitter morass. I don't have to memorize it. It's written down. It's in the book. But basically he described this desperation and loneliness. And boy, did I ever identify with it. I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, but I do remember that feeling more than anything. And the next morning I got on a plane and went up to Washington and checked myself into a treatment center, you know, a 30-day treatment center. Um, and, of course, I was living in California at the time, and, and the message was you got to work the steps. you got you got to uh, get a sponsor, go to meetings, 90 meetings in 90 days, and they were telling me all these things, and Boozer Pig kept saying, yeah, if you're a resident of the state of Washington, that's what you have to do to get sober, you know. Somehow these rules don't apply to me again, right? And so that's probably been one of my biggest uh, hurdles in recovery is somehow believing that, you know, this 12-step thing, gee, there's an awful lot of them. Couldn't we cut it in half or do something a little more abbreviated? Isn't there a budget version or something? You know, it's something that's just going to let me drink like a normal person, you know. Um, And I – that's what I was looking for. I was looking for that. But at the same time, I knew I was just so done, so desperate and so sick and tired of just being, uh, you know. I'd wake up in the mornings after of a round of drinking, swearing it off. I'm never going to do this again. And only to find myself hammered later that night, you know. That was my introduction into AA was through a treatment center. I moved back to California after finishing my treatment. I decided, yeah, my living situation, these probably aren't the best two roommates to have. A little slippery slope here, perhaps I should move. And I did. I got myself my little one-bedroom hole um, in um, and, and, you know, basically tried to stay sober. And I didn't get right involved into AA. I didn't. I started going to some uh, NA meetings about once a month or so. Somehow these rules didn't apply because in Washington you have to go to all those meetings. In Washington you have to get a sponsor, and all that kind of thing. And and while I was still managing to kind of white knuckle it, um, I went about ten months clean and sober, clean and sober. Well. White knuckling and not drinking, and occasionally going to an NA meeting, occasionally kind of looking at some uh, literature. They gave me a book in treatment. Uh, it turns out it was the big book. Um, I tried reading it, but it was archaic. It just didn't read very well. It was a dull story. You know, war fever ran high and all this good old stuff. And ugh. Anyway, I just was having a hard time relating. At 24 years old, it was hard to make these connections and really see things for what they were. Um, and so one morning at work, this was April 15th, 1987, 10 months sober, tax day. I have to run an errand from one building to another for work. Uh, the sequence of events is I, 
I drop my tax return off into the mailroom, jump on my motorcycle, start taking off through the parking lot, and manage to get run over by a coworker uh, who failed to stop or yield, ended up under her car, uh, and then just God made sure he had my attention. He decided to have her back up for a second pass off of me. And uh, I was pissed. I was busted up big time. You know, broke a shoulder, um, cracked ribs. And f even though there was uh, – this was right before a helmet law went into effect in California. I wasn't wearing a helmet, which probably saved my life, uh, only because it was a low-clearance uh, vehicle. Um, but I got – you know, the the thing that happens when you're at work and there's an incident – is the whole building empties and stands around you in a circle until the paramedics arrive. And then the first thing the paramedics do is they cut all your freaking clothes off in front of your coworkers. See, I was too embarrassed. That's, that's what I was worried about at that moment. I was ready to deck this lady. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, it, the, as that whole sequence happened, I could just see that whole scene over and over in my head. Um, and I really thought I was going to die that morning. You know, I thought, shit, this is how it ends. Uh, nope, click, click. It went into reverse, and I see the tire coming back at my head. I was like, oh, my God, we're going, here we go again, you know. Um, and, of course, I was screaming, and she was freaking out, and don't move, don't move. And they get me into the hospital. They get me into the trauma center. They say, what are you on? That's the first question I remember them asking me in the trauma center. What are you on? I guess they figured I must have been on something. And I said, oh, nothing. I'm a clean and sober member of, you know, I'm in recovery. I'm a clean and sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they said, great, bam, and they hit me with morphine. And, and instantly that whole sensation started coming back up. Oh, God, here we go again. I had, I had surgery that day. Um, in in the years following, I've had five surgeries on on the shoulder, including a replacement. Um, and you know, when I was recovering from that accident, I was given pain medication, and the label said, you know, uh, every four hours as needed. You know, and I read it carefully, and it didn't say Andy can have these however the hell he wants. You know, because I was I was worried about relapse, yet I was in a tremendous amount of pain, um, and uh, uh, at the time I was living by myself. My mom came down from Washington and stayed with me to kind of help me recover and convalesce. I was out of work for about six weeks. But I got off the pain meds. I had her give me the meds, you know. Um, I talk about that in my story because I've been to so many meetings where people have talked about how somebody said, well, you should stop taking medication, get off of whatever you're on in AA. And <clears throat> I encourage those people to ask those people that are telling them that for their medical license. Give me some evidence that you're of an authority that knows what's best for me, you know. Just like I don't deny myself glasses because I need them, you know, I shouldn't uh, deny myself some properly prescribed. Now, I, at the same time, I know how a lot of doctors hand out prescriptions like it's candy and they don't know about our disease. And so I respect that. But what did it for me is at the time, um, I shortly after 
my accident is when I started going to meetings and I got a sponsor. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the sequence of miracles just started happening from there. Um, ironically about two months before my accident I was I found myself in my one bedroom apartment very lonely once again you know not drinking but lonely and I prayed to God even though I wasn't really sure about this praying thing they taught me this in treatment and I said God I'm lonely you know I could really use a partner in life you know here at my YJ's age of 24, you know, I need somebody in my life. I didn't have anybody in my life. And I, and I thought about that, right? So anyway, and then so his answer was, okay, I'll have you get run over. <laughs> That'll get some people in your life, you know. Um, you got to be careful what you pray for. You really do. Uh, the thing that happened was uh, uh, around July of 86, uh, my brother asked me one morning to to come over and help him out, have breakfast at his place. Oh, we're helping out a coworker. She had her car, car stolen, and we're going to put in a radio. Oh, okay, fine. And uh, got all that taken care of and done, and she says, wow, how can I pay you guys? And he says, ah, don't worry about it. You can take me to lunch. And I said, you can take me to dinner. And she said, okay. And we went out on a date a couple weeks later and had another date after that. Uh, and on our second date, she came over to my house and looks in my bookshelf, and there's my big book. And she says, oh, you're a friend of Bill's too. And uh turned out she had about uh, three months less than I did. She got sober in September. Um, and we formed a relationship. And about six months after that, we were engaged, and... A year later, we were married. Um, I sometimes joke about my first wife. She's still my same wife. And that's how I met my wife. And uh, it's been an amazing journey. But that was mir- the first miracle was, um, you know, I asked God for somebody in my life. And 30-some years later, here we are. We're still part of each other's life. The uh, Going back to the first part of my uh, convalescence after the accident, you know, I got a sponsor. I started going to meetings regularly. And uh, my sponsor says, you know, it's kind of weird, but this medical industry, this pharmaceutical industry, the doctors, the whole medicine field, you know, they've discovered and researched and developed these drugs for purposes other than my own personal enjoyment. He goes, they didn't make them for Andy to just have a good time. They're there for a reason. And if you need to take them, follow follow doctor's orders. So I always talk about that in my story because I know that some people have uh, been given some strange feedback or advice in, in the meeting rooms. So I always ask for people when they tell me things like that, you know, to, to help me understand their qualifications. I've also gotten to be one of those staunch people big book guys that says I don't remember reading that part in the big book where is it you know help me see that so I think it's always worth uh, testing but it's also important for me to stay open to different perspectives Um, fast forward a couple of years this same company that I went and talked to the same manager that told that I went and talked to about having a problem 
uh, came to me and said, you know, we've got this project. We need to do some work overseas. Um, we'd like you to be part of this, and it's going to have you moving overseas to the Far East again, and and uh, this time to Malaysia. And, you know, our first reaction was, wow. And, and having grown up overseas and only been in the States a few years at that point, it, to me it was no big deal. It's just another place. You know, uh, but being married, my my wife was like, "You kidding me? Uh, I can't go there." And then we decided, well, if it's God's will, it'll happen, and it, we ended up there. And we got there, and there were no meetings. There was no AA, and we thought, okay, well, we better start writing letters to the intergroups nearby cities and nearby countries. So. To Hong Kong, Singapore, Indonesia, etc. We wrote letters to the central offices, giving our our um, home address, phone number, and it turned out it was a bit of a tourist area where we were. So tourists would come through every now and then, you know. And it's not uncommon. In the, and again, this was 1989. <coughs> excuse me. That we uh, um, were there prior to the internet, excitement and all that good stuff. Um, being able to uh, find meetings wasn't as simple as it is today. And we wrote to New York and and said, here we are. And they introduced us to this thing called the Loners and Internationalists Meeting, which is basically a letter. Uh, it's And it's kind of a group letter you can write to. Here's a bunch of people, and they're, they're people who are in isolated areas or on ships or whatever that can't get to meetings, yet they'll get a newsletter once a month. There's a bunch of addresses on the back, and we were introduced. We got the letter, and there was our name and address on the back. You know, welcome uh, to these two, and Andy and uh, his wife over in this country. And the next thing we know, we start getting letters from random people from around the world. And it was like, wow, this is really weird. Um, Again, God working in our life. Um, About a month after being in Malaysia, we flew to the nearest city that had a meeting. And and the guys at the meeting were like, really, you flew to a meeting? It's like, well, yeah, it's either that or kill people. You know, what are we going to (laughs) do, right? Um, We needed a meeting. I mean, just being married to a spouse who's in AA is not a meeting. I'm sorry, it's not. You know, and we had tapes, we had literature, but we needed that contact. There is something, if you don't participate in the contact part of AA, you're not participating. At least I'm not participating. Um, And we get sick of each other's stories, and we've heard them, you know. And it's like, oh, yeah, next day, yeah, it's still the same story, yeah. So, yeah, we flew to the nearest city. And we got to talking, and there was a, a community of expats, and some of them were uh, – we were hanging out with them after dinner, and they said, oh, you're up in that part of town. Yeah, there's there's actually a guy up there. There's there's a, 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 the Australian Air Force Base was up there, and they were pulling out, and they had like a skeleton crew there. They are mostly shut down and left already. Um, but there's this guy up there, Barry. Yeah, he's up there. Here's his phone number. So great, get back, get back home, call him up, call up Barry. Hey, Barry, I'm I'm a friend of Bill W's. He goes, right, you know, Australian guy, and he's just happy to meet me and happy to talk, and we get to talking. He says, yeah, and I said, uh, where do you live? Oh, I'm over on the island. He goes, whereabouts? Oh, just this north part of town. 
Are you in those towers? Yeah. He goes, what floor are you on? Uh, I'm on the 18th floor. And he goes, I'm on the 23rd. And I was like, holy crap, really? You know, just when I least expect it, there it is. God puts the guy I need in my life right then and there, you know. Like, how about a meeting tonight? And he goes, right, what time? Seven o'clock. We're at my house. Done. And we established a group, you know. And from there we started a group. And uh, he was shortly sent back to Australia right after we met him. And another guy from Australia came and took his place. And, and my wife called him up and says, uh, we have a meeting tonight, and it's at 7 o'clock, and it's going to be at this location. We had just found a church to have this meeting in. And she goes, and you're going to be there. And he's like, okay. <laughs> you know, hadn't met him, but sure enough, he was there, Jeff. And um, we're still in touch today. Barry passed away shortly after we met him, but Jeff we're still in touch with. And and that's the magic of this program, this this thing that just keeps going. Um. Fast forward a bit, we moved back to the U.S., lived in Arizona for about 10 years, and uh, I was I was uh, involved, but not really involved that much. We were I got accustomed to one meeting a week in Malaysia, you know, because that's all we had access to, unless we were traveling around, or tourists would come, you know, and every now and then the phone would ring, oh, hey, we're friends of Bill, awesome. Is there a meeting? Yep. Uh, where Where is it? Oh, where are you at? Because that's where it's going to be. You know, wherever you're at is where it's going to be. We're going to get together. How about seven? Okay, for whatever, seven's a good time. Anyway, and so, yeah, we'd meet. And it'd be in a restaurant or wherever, anywhere. But it was pretty much drop everything. We're, we're getting to have a meeting tonight, you know, outside of our regular cycle. And sometimes it would correspond to be on our night. Um, and uh, so we moved back to the U.S., um, and moved to another state, to Arizona. Didn't know anybody, you know, and uh, got plugged back in, found a meeting, found this group that we went to on every Friday night. And every Friday night, the topic was gratitude. Gratitude. Oh, man, it made me crazy. But uh, it taught me something, you know, by going back to the same group of people every week. And it was a good meeting. It was a good group. You know, and people would just talk about what they're really grateful for. And I'll tell you something. If you're not grateful, immerse yourself in a gratitude meeting. Uh, because after a while, it'll start to help you see. It helped me see, you know, of all the things I worried about and complained about, my problems were really not problems. They really weren't. And it helped me see that. Um, yeah, so we lived there 10 years, and I was going to my gratitude meeting. But at about the and, – and so when I went to Malaysia, I had about three years of sobriety, came back. At about the 10-year sober mark, I found myself at a, a roundup and listening to a speaker. And, you know, good things had happened in my life, but I wasn't really feeling that connected. People would talk about this – miracle of AA and how everything was awesome and there you know this phenomenal relationship with a sponsor and you know just their whole life was a big bright pink cloud you know and I was just like good things have happened in my life granted you know but I, I kind of reached that plateau it felt like is like is this it this is all there is to recovery you know and I realized now I was I was slowly starting to drift out to the edge, 
you know, and I heard a speaker once again, God put into my life what I needed to hear that day. He says, there's, if you really want the big buzz that's available in AA, there's two things you absolutely have to have. And that got my attention. And he goes, the first one is you got to have a God that you can trust. This coming from a guy who had denounced his God, you know, through his story. But he said, you have to have a God that you can trust. And the second thing is you got to work these steps. And at 10 years sober, that's exactly the two things that were absent in my in my program. You know, I was doing GSR, I was the secretary, I was this and that and involved, but it was kind of like on the surface and just kind of dabbling, you know. Uh, and so I got together with a couple of guys from my gratitude meeting. Hey, let's get together on another night. Let's, you know, that saying that they say in the, the bumper stickers in AA, it's actually in this book. You know, we have this book, it's called Big and all that stuff, they expand upon it in here. And we, let's get together. And we started reading it together and a group of four of us. And we and we started to meet at my house and we go to the other guy's house and stuff like that. But we'd take a little bit of time and pick it apart and just started getting into the book and reading it and studying it and understanding it and questioning it and asking, what does, they, what does this mean? What does that mean, you know? And, you know, it's like they said, the book then came alive. It really started to be a bigger part and, and a more important part, um, of my, of my recovery. You know, you can only just go to meetings for so long, you know, and, and at least I could only go to meetings for so long before something had to happen. I understand how people go out and it scares the heck out of me today. You know, I involve myself in this stuff. Um, So I got into the book. But I'll tell you, Boozer Pig never left me. He's always been up there talking to me, you know. And at the weirdest times, I get the weirdest ideas, you know. At 11 years sober, my son is born, you know. And, uh, I mean, it was a really gross experience and all that. But once I got it all cleaned up and here's your kid, you know, congratulations. The first thought was, wow, let's have a drink. And I was like, What? What? Where did that come from? You know, when I least expect it, Boozer Pig goes, now's my chance. Now's my chance. So I, I, that scares me every time he says something like that, you know. Fast forward a little bit more. Um, at, and in the summer of 2000, before the dot-com bubble burst, while I was riding a wave of grandiosity, um, I purchased a, I purchased a house in California on a margin check, and uh, talk about a grandiose move uh, on the assumption that yeah my house in Arizona will sell and you know even though this one costs twice as much uh, you know it'll all be great and so we moved because I was commuting to this area uh, three four days a week for like two years and I finally said to my boss this is stupid why don't you move me. Again, the same company um, that that I told I had a problem with. And uh, so we moved here. And as soon as we moved here, the bottom fell out of, of the markets. And suddenly I find myself upside down in financial crisis. And, I, and Boozer Pig goes, they're going to come. They, whoever they are, 
are going to come and they're going to take it all. And then your wife, your family's going to leave you. And then your, your job will find out. And then, you know, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then it always ends up with me naked in a park in February with a fire hose held to me. Why it ends up there, I have no idea, but it always ends up there. That's where that tape takes me. And it's just craziness. But that's what Boozer Pig does to me is like, that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to happen. Um, my son is three and a half years old at this time. And I'd, I'd learned from you guys, pray, 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 pray about it. And the prayer, and I'm not an out loud praying kind of guy. I just am not. And um, I prayed. I was sitting there in my kitchen looking out the window, and I was just gripped in fear. I was in complete fear. 14 years sober, just totally paralyzed, unable to do anything. And, and I'm thinking, because that's how I pray, is in my head, not aloud, sitting at my kitchen table. God, just let this be okay. Give it to God, give it to God, give it to God, give it to God. God, just let this be okay. And I'm sitting there and I hear some footsteps. It's the little kid. He comes running up. He's been playing upstairs. And I'm not praying out loud. And he just runs into the room, puts his hand on my shoulder, looks me in the eye, and says, It'll be okay, Daddy. And he runs out. That's all I did. I can't explain it. And uh, and I kind of shoot him off, you know, because I'm busy here. I'm praying, damn it. I missed it. I missed the moment. And, uh, yeah, it still makes the few hairs I have stand up when I think about that moment. Um. I was talking to my brother, who's in the program, a little later that afternoon and told him I was just in so much fear and I just prayed to God. And you know what? Matt came into the room and told me it'd be okay. And he's like, holy shit. And I said, oh, crap, you're right. Holy shit. It was immediate, instant, you know. Um and it was okay. A couple of weeks later, the house in Arizona sold. And uh, I prayed, God, please take this problem away. And I had this margin account, which had some stock that this company had given me and this and that. And, and I had amassed a, a fair amount of wealth while the stock was doing a certain price and all. But then there was this one, uh, and, I, and I prayed to God one more time. I said, God, just take this problem away because I kept getting margin calls and margin calls and debt and oh my god my world is upside down i have to pay this monumental tax bill how am i going to get through all this all this and there was a magic balancing point at if the market would hit a certain number and the stock would hit a certain number then the assets and the liabilities were equal and it would all go away and uh the broker calls up and goes well i know you've been asking for this target uh it looks like we're at about that number and I said, sell it all. And my problem was removed. The debt was gone. And so were the assets. And I said, God, we've had a gross misunderstanding. This is not at all what I meant when I said, please take away this problem. I was talking about the left-hand column, not the right-hand column. you know. And uh, he says, don't worry. We'll, we'll get through this. You know? Yeah, that was my... Uh, 
financial genius stroke, you know. And that's when I learned when they talk about I have to turn to him and in this program I have to turn all things to him. I'm not talking, you know, at first it was just here's here's my compartmentalized life, this compartment called alcoholism, please take, you can take, have it, run your 12 steps, make it, make it happy, you know, but then part by part, I had to come back to every single compartment. Yeah, this marriage thing, going to have to give that one to you too. This financial genius thing, going to have to give that one to you too. This parenting thing of a challenging kid, I'm going to have to give that one to you too. Uh, this honor, this, this boss that I'm having a problem with, I'm going to have to give this one to you, too, you know. And uh, it took a long time for me to realize when they said we have to do this for all areas of our life that it truly was all areas of my life, you know. Um, in 2006, this guy that was in one of my meetings in this area said, um, let's get into service. I said, all right, what do you want? What do you have in mind? He goes, let's go to prison. And I'm like, and this guy was as big as a house, you know. He's huge. And I go, look at me. I'm white. I'm small. I mean, I'm like an hors d'oeuvre. What do I do? And I have no reason to go there, you know. I can't go there. Uh, and uh, I, I, I've never been in jail. I, I, what do I have to offer to these guys, you know. And um, don't worry about it. It'll be good. And so I went to this state penitentiary, got my clearance, got to go, and I went to my first meeting there, and I see this guy in the meeting, and he looks familiar to me. And uh, he's he's there for his fourth DUI doing three years. And uh, and I, looked, I know this guy. And after the meeting, I said, did you live in the Bay Area? In the 80s? And he goes, yeah, I remember you. He used to go to the meetings that I went to when I first got sober. There but for the grace of God, you know. And I've got nothing to offer these guys, right? And there's this guy. This is what happens if you keep going out. And uh, and he was about to get released. He had been there for a few years. Um, I, one of my, I think it was my second or my third meeting I was there. At the meeting, and and at the and at this prison, they run the meetings. We're basically guests, and it was they were talking various topics and whatever. And, and I made the big mistake of opening my mouth. I said, uh, "Gee, you know, you, you guys, if you ever get the time, you ought to you ought to read the big book." And they're like, "Yeah, asshole, we got the time." And I really didn't mean it that way. I really didn't. And and this one guy says, "No one's ever taken us through the big book. Why don't you lead a big book study? You know, put your mouth." money where your mouth is okay fine and so and so i did um and we started going through the book and we started going page by page it took us two years to get through the first 164 pages um that was in 2007 that we started that 2006 2007 in 2013 um the state had uh sponsor for an inmate down at another facility and a volunteer at another and the state says well you can't be a visitor and a volunteer so you're out and so they cut my clearance and the class or they call them classes the meeting that I was running for those six years seven years 
the inmate said uh, they wrote a letter. And I came across it the other day. They wrote a letter to the warden and said, this guy comes here every freaking week, you know, and we've learned more from this guy. And uh, make an exception. They they basically appealed. And then I get a letter from the warden saying, hey, can you come back? And I'm like, shit, how do you say no to that? You know, so, so service work, H&I work has been really big. Um, last year I became a coordinator for that facility, AA coordinator. And now my, I still go to meetings there. Um, and uh, they... Uh, they, they, my, my role is to find other volunteers to go, you know, and get cleared. And of course they've made the process cumbersome. So it's kind of like cat herding, trying to get an alcoholic to do anything, you know, what that's like. Um, anyway, so it's been such a rewarding experience. Um, 2012, um, I spent my dad's last week with him. You know, he he was dying of cancer, and he had a he had a melanoma that was pretty aggressive. And my sister had stayed with him for like four months, five months, something like that. And uh, maybe it was even six. Anyway, she was taking care of him until he was getting ready to pass. And my dad, my mom had Alzheimer's, and by the time she passed and was pretty much gone. Uh, my dad had no reason to not drink anymore, so he went back to drinking. He started on near beer, and that always looked like a slippery slope to me, and sure enough, he went back. And uh, I got to spend my dad's last week with him, making him vodka cranberries just to keep him comfortable, you know. And it's really weird how this program works, how, you know, I never thought that's what my amends to my dad would look like, you know just keep him comfortable just be a service just try to be the best son you can be you know and uh that's what i did and that was i guess it's been eight years now 2012 i think is when he died um and he was he was a proud man he was a staunch alcoholic man but he also was the guy who 12 stepped me you know had it not been for him telling me that my mother thought i might have a drinking problem i probably wouldn't be here today you know, um, it's amazing. It's been, I've been with the same employer now for 35 years. Um, and they still have me do these weird things every now and then go on this assignment, that assignment, you know, and, uh, I'll tell you, this program has been nothing but miracles for me. And, and, uh, it's taught me in so many things, and it's taught me to be very careful about what I pray for um, because, uh, you know, I know we're not supposed to pray for outcomes because I usually pray for the wrong ones, but uh, I, I've also learned to be specific when it's necessary to be specific. <laughs> um, this is an amazing program. You know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And... Uh, I'm, the longer I stay sober, the more I find myself involving myself in the 12-step portion, um, working with other alcoholics, staying connected, because I see what happens to those that kind of just, just attend meetings or start distancing themselves and getting comfortable. Because pretty soon their boozer pig is going to say something like, I got this, 
don't worry about it. I got this. And I could convince myself right back out there. And uh, that scares the hell out of me. You know, I've heard so many people to say, if I drink again, I might die. You know, and the thought that occurs to me is, what if I don't? That would really suck. And, uh, yeah, anyway, I think I've talked long enough. I think I'll let it go at that. Such a good storyteller. I was enjoying the story. And I love your boozer pig morning <laughs> experience. Can you give us your quick? Oh, God. I mean, you can take your time, but I know it's not lengthy. Yeah, my morning experience. So boozer pig is – so I, was, I really – boozer pig took on its shape and form when somebody once asked me, have you ever had that thought, I hate myself? And I thought, God, what have I not had that thought? And then they said, well, which one are you? Huh? Are you the one doing the hating or being hated? There's two of us. I'm like, holy crap. It blew my mind. But that's what introduced me to this whole ego idea and mind or thinker or boozer pig as I call him. And boozer pig is always worrying about and going on about something in the past or in the future. right? And every, every so often there's all these thoughts going on. And I've learned my form of meditation is to just – Sit back and observe and listen and think and allow the thought to be the thought and not try to steer it because it's going to happen anyway. I, there's no point in fighting them. And then just kind of try to put myself in a in an observer role and go, huh, that was an interesting thought. I wonder what my next thought will be. And that will stop the stream of thought long enough that now I know I can insert my foot in there and say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And I can reset my day many times a day. Some days I wake up in the morning and the very first thing I hear is, oh, good, you're up. We need to talk. We've been, you know, we've been having a meeting up here. And now that you're up, we need to. And, and it's just like, oh, good God. Is that what the day's going to be like? And I've, I, I've learned, again, tools through you all in this program to to have a routine you know somebody said cover up the first three letters of spiritual what am i left with ritual well no no wonder i wasn't getting anywhere i never had a, a ritual um i wasn't the outlier out loud praying kind of guy but a newcomer at a meeting once said i get on my knees to pray because when i'm on my knees there's really nothing else to do that made sense to me and that that taught me the discipline of getting on my knees. Every morning, I roll out of bed. The very first thing I do is hit my knees. Start with a simple prayer. God, help me not be such a dick today. Help me be the best husband, father, worker, because that's generally what I'm going to be today. Let me be those things. And I'll put in a third-step prayer and a seventh-step prayer, and then I go about my day and start. But, yeah, every now and then, especially when those first thoughts in the morning is, oh, good, you're up, that's when I know I've probably been uh, finding myself getting a little too complacent because the the longer I drift or, or not involve myself in in this program, the louder Boozer Pig gets. It definitely helps when you identify it as something else than yeah. you. Uh, which it so often feels like, is certainly for me and probably most or all alcoholics. Thank God we are not our thoughts. Right? Yes. 
You mentioned your accident and your program before and after that. Mm -hmm. And Lisa came along. And Mm -hmm. for our listeners, episode one is the other half of Andy. The assumption I'm reading between the lines is that in part, Lisa helped strengthen your program. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Here was, yeah, after she told me she was a friend of Bill's, she, you know, we were, we had gotten together three or four times and she goes, I, I need my meetings. And I said, oh, okay. Mind if I tag along? Because, you know, I was attracted and I wanted to spend time with her. And so she did become a part of what got me into these meetings regularly, you know? And, uh, yeah, if, if I don't have a ritual, I ain't going to get spiritual, you know, and that was part of it. Tell me about your ritual. Again, my ritual is really simple. Um, I start my day on my knees with prayer, right? Uh, my meditation is simply observing my thoughts. It happens all the time, you know. Some days it's allowing everybody to drive how they like, you know. Uh, part of my ritual there was somebody said, just one day a week we're going to allow everybody to drive how they like. I know it sounds really stupid, but, you know, in sobriety, I actually followed somebody home one day to help them understand how displeasing their driving habits were. Anyway, um, but I don't do that anymore, you know. And I so I picked Tuesday as my day. Tuesday was my day that I was going to allow everybody to drive how they like. Um, today, every time I get behind the wheel, it feels like Tuesday. It just happens. Somebody told them, told me their mother said, every time you wash your hands, you're supposed to sing yourself happy birthday. That's how long you put soap on your hands. And so I substituted the serenity prayer. And uh, a couple of things happened out of that. One, um, I don't get sick. I haven't had a cold in, God, I don't know how long. You know, good hygiene. There's actually something to it after all as it turns out. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to reset my day multiple times a day, you know, because uh, I forced, it, it wasn't a, not that I had bad hygiene or anything, but, you know, it wasn't a, a, a deliberate part of my focus every day. Uh, whereas if I force myself, no, this is a moment I'm going to stop and insert serenity prayer, it generally breaks the stream of thought of whatever else is going on and it's kind of like my day my my multiple times a day reset button and i up to 10 a day right um i'm in service that's part of my ritual uh i'm now meeting with my sponsor again i was without a sponsor for a while but i've got a sponsor and we meet regularly uh and we're going through the book again I talk to other alcoholics. Um, I've got sponsees, but a lot of the guy sponsees are, you know, we take each other through the steps and then we move on, you know. It's not like we play cards every week and get together all the time or any of that kind of thing. Um, and I'm involved in service, you know. I have I go to the prison about uh, at least once a week. Um, sometimes three times, four times a week, depending on the week as I'm bringing literature and that kind of thing. Uh, 
it's really weird. Every every month I get about uh, a couple hundred grapevines show up at my house, and oh, I got to go distribute these, you know. So it keeps me involved. It keeps me uh, connected. Um, those are my rituals, you know. Yeah. There's few people in the program that I watch, and what do they do, and how can I follow what they do? And uh, you're one of them. So I love all the work that you do with the prison. And I know I'm on your distribution list and that, and I want to stay on it because the kids will grow older and I will have more time. And, it, and you'll get through the 100 pages of the application or whatever it is now. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering how your higher power relates i mean you can talk about the compartments but just in general your relationship with your higher power you mentioned only praying in your head um yeah he plays a well he's got a big sense of humor i know that and uh i've i've learned to trust god as a way out of my fear and i have a lot of fear about a lot of things and i know that uh as it's just like our book talks about, our literature talks about, you know, when we stay close to him, we're, we're, we're more at peace. And the intuitive thought becomes the intuitive thought, you know, uh, where it talks about our, our whole thought plane will be on a new level, right? I, I truly believe that comes by staying involved and, and, you know, participating and, and not necessarily reading the same passages or all that, although that can be helpful. It's really, uh, what, what trains me how to act differently. Right. Um, I'll never forget, uh, many years ago I was listening, I was working with a newcomer. He, he had a few years and, he wanted to work the steps, and we were out on this one road not too far from here, kind of out in a rural area, and it got to the third step, and we decided, okay, it's time for the third step. Let's get out of the car. We're on the side of the road, kneeling, my arms on his shoulder. You know, of course, nobody had been coming by this very, very uh, remote area, and we're saying the third step prayer with the book open because we didn't memorize it, you know. And, of course, that's the moment a, pull, a truck pulls up and the guy asks, you boys all right? <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 we're fine. <laughs> and and I got to hear his version of the story, which was, I'm not kidding. <laughs> anyway, whatever. But, yeah, those are the kinds of things that uh, – those are the experiences with my God. Um, I grew, Like I said, I grew up in a Catholic family. I grew up in the Far East, which is not predominantly Christian. Um, I've been exposed to a lot of different religions. So I don't, you know, for for when it comes to describing God, I find that silence makes the most sense for me um, because I just don't put words to it. It's it's just a, it's just a, a, a knowing, if you will, and a trusting. And I did not have this at 10 years. I can tell you that I was still trying to run the show. And, and that's why that's when I started to understand there were compartments to my life. I learned that God gave me a kid to raise as one of his, he goes, you're going to be the babysitter, you know, and you're, you're, you're not for long, you know, a dozen years, you know, a couple, a couple decades is all I'm asking. 
but you can do that and then you're going to have to let him go and uh yeah he's 23 and uh he's his own my he's his own person you know and some days i just want to push him down the stairs you know and other other times i i'm just in awe about uh yeah this is the kid that told me don't worry daddy it's going to be okay you know so i got a good life today i really do and i know i could screw that up in a second and uh that's the thing I try to remind myself of I don't got this I hope I never do because that's when Boozer Pig takes control (laughs) and he's loud oh yeah so final question for the alcoholic out there suffering what do you have to say You, you don't have to do this alone you know, and uh, the the more you rely on others, the easier it gets. And uh, I can con- I've come to expect the the uh, support I get in this fellowship. Yeah, you can count on it. For more information, read the first one hundred and sixty four pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.